Hey, good morning again. Happy Sunday once again. Um, just tune in and tuning in. Welcome to uh, Calvary uh, Chapel San Ramon. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's get to work, man. Let's get to work. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 18. It's a huge chapter. It's a big chunk. There's lots to do, and God's going to be with us through the study. So turn there if you have it. Grab your Bibles, grab your pens, your, your study guides, and do whatever you need to do to prepare your hearts. But before that, let's pray together one more time because uh, that is awesome to be able to do. Father, we're just so grateful for this opportunity again to open up your word, to look at it, and to see with our eyes what you have done in the lives of your people. And so we pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would shape us to be the men and women you want us to be. We pray, Father, for humility. We pray for for strength. We pray for reliance on you and all of it, Lord God, for your your glory and 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 in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Hey, um wondering if most of you know this, probably most of you cuz you know, y'all are smart folks, but up until 1919, the signal, the you know, traffic signals were just go and stop. So it's just red and green. So you can imagine that that's a little bit problematic, right? And the intersections is a little unsafe and uh and you can like you don't have time to slow down because all of a sudden it's green and then it's red. And so in 1920, a, uh, a policeman actually named William Potts uh, invented the yellow light. Pretty amazing. Very simple, super practical, but it saved lives and it was super, super useful. And now that's a standard, right? That's what you see all over the place is the three lights because of what he kind of contributed. That's the same in our story today. Moses has this major responsibility. He has a lot of things going on. And his father-in-law, Jethro, he visits and he gives this simple, practical advice that's super helpful. And it changes really the format and the organization of the whole Nation, But we have to be careful, though. We have to be careful to not see this simply as a lesson in organizational leadership. You know, we have to, like in every text that we study, we have to strive to find the gospel in it. And we have to strive to find out how this shapes our view of God. Because we never want to preach a message, or we never want to learn or hear a message to find only a simple list of behavior modification. That's not what we're about. We want to have an increasingly high view of God, and we want to honor Christ in our hearts. So let's, in the background, let's, let's take a look at what we're looking at today. Part 8, right? Part 8 of our study, this amazing study of who is God. And actually, this is the finale. That's why you get this gigantic, cool uh, video that we had earlier, super epic. It's, it ties into how epic... Uh, this finale is, and that who is God is possibly the greatest question we could ever ask. And it's been an epic journey for them, right? Remember, they crossed the Red Sea. Moses sings about it. Then God takes the people through some bitter waters, and then people got hungry, and they got thirsty, and they began to, what Brian said, complain, blame, lose their aim and make false make false claims they started doing that and then 
as we studied who is God, John Simpson came and talked about the limits of God. Does God have limits? And he does because of his nature and the, and the reflection of truth in who he is. And then we, ta- we saw how God provided manna for the people and the significance of that. And they came to a place afterwards of refreshing, but there was no water. And God provided water through the rock. And that was a picture of Christ as well. And then last week, they came, or the people came to a, uh, to a point where they meet their first battle against the Amalekites. And we, we heard the, the, the background of that. Joshua fought, and Moses stood uh, praying with his hands up, and Aaron and her were there to help him. And it's been an amazing journey already, but as it relates and as it's compared to 40 years, we have to uh, quote the card carpenters and say it's only just begun <laughs> if you don't know that song i'm probably too young anyways on the, on, the, on the slide today on the map take a look at it israel is in camp in mount sinai the the mountain of god now i want you to take note of this specific okay specifically this is a unique chapter because for the first time, there's no conflict, there's no major drama, there's no desperate cry from Moses, there's no even miracles or supernatural wonders. It kind of reminds me of the book of Esther, where God is not directly speaking, he's not obviously and visibly moving, but he is undeniably at work. In fact, it's the same with our lives. Just because we don't see God splitting the heavens or just because God is not speaking through the thunderstorms to us doesn't mean he's not at work. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus said that he and his father are constantly working. And so with your permission, I want to kind of approach the text a little differently today. I want to front load this and I want to answer the question of who is God in the beginning before we even get to the text. That way, when we are going through the text, you will see God's fingerprints, fingerprints throughout the entire thing. Okay, so based on this chapter, who is God? God is the God of order and not of disorder. He is the God who sends and at the same time equips those he sends. He is the God who knows our needs before we even ask. He's able to do much more than we can ever ask for or imagine. He knows. He's the God who knows our limitations. Remember, after the fight with the Amalekites, he knew they needed rest. He knew they needed to regroup and God gave them that. God is the God who helps and his help is both heavenly minded and of earthly good. His help is practical, it is real, and it is useful. He is the God who corrects us, even wounds us, but he doesn't wound us like a beast or some kind of uh, criminal. He wounds like a surgeon, like a doctor, intending to heal, to benefit his people and for his glory. He is a loving father, we see that here, who patiently, patiently teaches his children. He is a God who owns everything and therefore he can use anything to further his purpose. And finally, he is the God who desires us to worship him and he wants our worship and our lives and our testimony to be infectious. That's who God is, at least here, right? And then we're going to see a lot of it. So we got a lot of work to do. Slide that first one is is verse one to six is where we're going to kind of like, we're going to use that to set the stage. We're 
going to use use that as a backdrop for our study, kind of set the scene. So follow me right away. Verse one, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law, heard all of that God has done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses's wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse five, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming with you or to you with your wife and her sons with her. So I want you to think about this. God is never wasting any action or any time. There's always a plan. He's always moving forward with his goals and his purposes. And sometimes one action, one move accomplishes many things. So for example, the Red Sea, the Red Sea swallowing the Egyptians was both a judgment for the Egyptians and also salvation for the people. And it's the same here. God leads Moses and Israel to encamp at the mountain of God. By, by the way, a little side note, some of the text will say Horeb and some will say Sinai. It is the same mountain. The name is actually related to the area surrounding it. So for example, the will, you know, the people traveled through the wilderness of sin. And so this face of the mountain, this side of the mountain range is called Sinai or Sinai. That's the reason. Okay. But God is going to be doing a lot in this area. He's going to do colossal and pivotal things here. The law is going to be given here. The Ten Commandments is going to be given here. The whole, the whole drama with the golden calf is going to be here, plus hosts of different other things. But this location is actually very significant for another reason. This is the same mountain where the burning bush happened, where Moses was commissioned by God to the ministry. And remember, what was he doing before he was called by God? He was tending sheep. Who sheep? Jethro's sheep. And we see the details in Exodus 3.1 that it was, it was Jethro's sheep and that it was his territory around. The, so meaning to say that Jethro's territory was not far from there. Right? So I want you to think about this. On purpose, God leads them there because he's going to do amazing things there, but also God plans to bless Moses directly. He's going to let him see his family. He's going to allow Jethro to give some, invest some uh, organizational leadership skill advice to Moses and all of it to benefit the people and to give God the glory. Right. So the set, the stage is set. So the father-in-law Jethro, he and his and Zephora, the wife and the two sons are nearby. They hear about all the things that God has done, and they come to visit. Now we know that Moses' own father wasn't in the scene much. We know his mom was right because she raised him, but his dad is is not a lot in the picture. We don't see that a lot. Exodus two one, we find out that Moses' dad was a Levite. Exodus six twenty, we find out that his name is Amram and he lived one hundred thirty seven years old. 
right, up to that age. And we see it in a couple other places, but not much uh, action, just genealogy. In fact, Moses was a baby, remember, when he went to the palace of Pharaoh and he stayed there for 40 years and then there's the whole drama with the Egyptian getting killed and he fled to the plains of Midian for 40 more years and God called him to, uh, to, his, to, his, to his ministry when he was 80 years old. All of that to say is that Jethro was probably closer to him as a father than his own father and Moses needed him now and it is exactly the timing that God knew it and sent Jethro there. I want you to look at verse 3 and 4 about the sons. We don't have time to unpack all the golden nuggets that are in here, but, but just take a quick glance. Son, son 1, son 1, son number 1, his name is Gershom, and that was a reminder to Moses of his own status as a foreigner when he came to Midian. Son 2, his name is Eliezer, which means God is my help or the help of my God. Right? which is a reminder to Moses of God's help and God's action in the victory over the Egyptians. But here's your homework question because we don't have time to unpack this. Here's the question for you, kind of funny, curious question. When did Moses and Sephora name that kid? Right, The second one, Eliezer, because ec- biblical timeline experts say that from the Red Sea to where they are now, it's only been less than two months. Right? It's only been less than two months since they crossed the Red Sea and the, and the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians and Pharaoh. So how old is that kid, Eliezer? If he's older than two months, then why did Moses name him to remind him that God helped him to defeat Pharaoh? Right? I mean, that, the, the timeline doesn't match unless his name is prophetic, unless God already knew what he was going to do in Moses' life. Anyway, homework, text me, email me, I don't know, whatever, right? Get, get back to me. I don't know either, but it was just a curious thing. Anyway, verse 6, Mo, Jethro sends a text, I mean, not really, but he sends a message to, to Moses that here I come, I'm coming with your family. So the next 21 verses, verses 7 to 27, we're going to break down into four points. And here they are. Number one is contagious worship. And that's talking about Moses' praise report that affected Jethro so much. Number two is correction offered. That's Jethro offering constructive criticism to Moses' operation. Three is the criteria for leadership where we see some prerequisites for leaders. And then four is the counsel received. Moses follows Jethro's advice to the T. And then we're going to do some takeaways and then we're done. Okay? So now, verse or, or number one, slide one, all that stuff. Verse seven. Here we go. Follow. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord has done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they have behaved proudly, he was above them. In verse 12, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law. 
before God. So Moses and Jethro catch up, right? That's what you do when you haven't seen somebody in a long time. And it's possibly been a year or so that they haven't seen each other. So they catch up, they kiss each other, they, ha- they hang out, and they they... They tell stories. And think about this. Moses is not the same man who left about a year ago, right? Before he was leading sheep. Now he's leading a nation of two point something million people. By the way, a little side note because I love side notes. It's hard to grasp two point something million people. So let me use this as a point of reference. In 2019, Alameda County's population was 1.6 million people. Right? So that's Dublin, Pleasanton, Livermore, Hayward, Oakland, Alameda Island, uh, Berkeley, San Leandro, Fremont, or whatever else that I missed saying that. And still, with all those people combined, that is less than the Israelites in the wilderness. Can you grasp that? That's so many people. No wonder it's such a headache to lead that group of people, right? Imagine that. Larger than Alameda County in 2019, all wandering in the wilderness. What a mess. Right? Back in the story, it's clear that the way Moses talked about God caused Jethro to rejoice in what God has done, verse 9, proclaim that the Lord is greater than all other gods, verse 11, and offered sacrifices to God, verse 12. Let me ask you this. How do you think Moses spoke about God to Jethro so that when he was done, it caused Jethro to worship God too? Do you think Moses spoke about God in this humdrum, routine, boring way, like he was reading from a phone book? Do you think that's, that's what he did? Or do you think Moses was dynamic? He was excited about the, the events. Do you think he was, he was sparing no details? Do you think that there was still a hint of supernatural lingering there? Do you think that Moses' high view of God was instantly obvious to Jethro, so much so that his praise and worship spilled out onto Jethro. Friends, that's what we're called to do. Think about it. That's what we're called to do. Not to be over-emotional or obnoxious, but, but our praise and our worship must be contagious. And the question for us, the question for us today is, can people tell that we have a big God from talking to us? Can people see that we treat him highly and view him highly? Can people see, can people tell that by talking to us that it is obvious that he is alive and he's active and he's moving in our lives? Or is he just some kind of insurance policy we keep in our wallet just in case something happens? And slide Luke eleven thirty three says no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it would be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Our lives must create a gospel conversation. Our words, our life, our worship, our testimony must be put on a stand so those who come in may see. Number one is contagious worship. Number two is correction offered. Verse 13, here we go. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, and he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do it alone? Or why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. 
when they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another. I make known the statutes of God and his law. Verse 17, so Moses, his father-in-law, said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. So I want you to picture the craziest DMV line you've ever been to, Oakland or Pleasanton, I don't know, right? The craziest, and multiply that by thousands. It's a mess. It's like, this, that's the scene in the foot of the mountain all day. Like, people just lined up all day with their lunches and their kids and being, you know what I mean? It's just chaos all day. And there's a feeling in the text that this is nothing new. In other words, the way that Moses explains to Jethro seems like this happens all the time. And so right now, there's no major issue, right? There's no, there's no lacking of water or food. There's no external battles, but there's still small disagreements all over the place. So much so that there's enough, there was enough of those that Moses had to deal with it all day, right? And so Jethro watches and offers some help. So remember, Moses is 80 plus years old at this time, and Jethro, who is his father-in-law, might be, it's probably safe to say that he's a little older than Moses, right? Maybe not a lot older because we don't know how old Zephora is, but I would venture to say, at least guess, that he was a little older. Jethro is a priest. He uh, is a shepherd. He oversees a number of sheep and he oversees a large territory. So he has some organizational leadership experience and he sees this operation, this, this non-efficient thing that Moses is doing and he says something. So I want you to notice a couple of things. A couple of things. Number one, I want you to first notice Jethro's main issue is Moses is doing this by himself. Verse 14, why sit alone? Verse 18, why, you are not able to perform it yourself. Brian talked about it last week in, uh, in part seven of Exodus. Moses relied on a bunch of different people to win the battle. And it's an ongoing lesson for Moses. And I like that because I need reminders all the time to learn things but it's amazing that god has designed he has designed so that believers will come alongside each other in fact god has gifted us with the church he's gifted us with the body he's given us with a community of faith so we don't have to do it alone and jethro's specific but very useful advice comes from one this one problem that moses was doing it all on his own Remember what, what God said to Adam in Genesis 2:18 says, "The Lord God said, "It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him." So obviously the context is different, but the need is the same. It is not good for us to be alone. Second thing I want you to notice is Jethro was willing to speak a word of correction to Moses because of these reasons, because he cared, but also because they have a relationship. He cared and they, he had a, they had a relationship. Someone famous and smart once said, people will endure a hard word from you if they already know your heart. People will endure a hard word from you if they already know your heart. In Proverbs 27.5, it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. It is better to correct someone than to love them quietly. Here's the reality. Leaders who don't allow themselves to be subject to accountability of others would inevitably fall into corruption 
or failure. That's true in the corporate side with CEOs. It's true for political leaders. And it's certainly true in a spiritual context. Remember the whole story with David, King David, uh, and the whole drama and scandal with Bathsheba and Uriah thinking he got away with it. And Nathan, the prophet, steps in and says, you are the man. You messed up, David. And I love that. That accountability is so healthy for us. And that's a lesson for us. We rob ourselves of good advice and new perspectives when we try to do things ourselves. When we try to do things alone, we rob ourselves of what God could bless us through test, through perspective and through advice when we try to do things alone. Jethro is a picture of God, isn't he? He's a picture of God as a loving father. And he wasn't going to stand idly by and let his son flounder. I want you to remember this. God will interrupt your life to correct you if he considers you his child. God will interrupt your life and he will correct you if he considers you his child. So rejoice in God's correction. Today, nowadays, especially in the West, um, society interprets rebuke and correction and disagreement as a bad thing, right? They interpret it as, as tolerance, uh, being intolerant, right? And against peace. So, because here's the thing. In the name of tolerance and in the name of peace, we are supposed to endure wrong things. That's terrible. In your study notes, not on the slide, Matthew eighteen fifteen, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault. Between you and him, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In the, in the women's study, uh, Jesus among secular gods, uh, you know, the... I read it, Giselle's teaching me stuff through it, and we talk about it all the time. But he talks about disagreements, because people today are adverse, or they're allergic to disagreements, because they think that it's a precursor to intolerance or violence. But disagreement is healthy. In fact, disagreements testify that truth exists, because we're chasing truth. And because if everything is true, then nothing is true. If everything is true, then nothing is true. Check out this, this, uh, this quote. Jesus on the cross is simultaneously the greatest act of disagreement with us and also the greatest act of God's love for us. I'm going to say that again because I didn't make that up. Jesus on the cross is simultaneously the greatest act of disagreement with us and also the greatest act of God's love for us. Okay. Number one was contagious worship. Number two is correction offered. And number three is the criteria for leaders. Verse 19, Jethro is speaking now. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the law and show them the way in which they must walk and work the they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such of them over to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. Verse 22, and let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter they will bring to you, but every small matter they, they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people also go to their place in 
peace. The Bible says that God is a God of order. That's in our slide, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God loves structure. He loves organization. He loves design. That's why the universe is so intricately designed and put together. That's why in the body there are definite roles. That's why God calls us to have worship that is orderly. And beneficial. And I love the emphasis on leadership and organization. And I love that Jethro desires to practically and genuinely help Moses. And all of it is grounded in a deep desire to honor, to honor God. Make no mistake, the administration of leadership must have as its primary goal to glorify God. That has to be the goal. And I want you to think about this. If Moses follows this advice... It's not going to be easy. So I did the math, and I'm not a math genius by any means. I can barely use a calculator. So I did the math based on how I understood this. I actually did it myself. So if I'm wrong, text me. Anyways, but if Moses, for Moses to choose leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens out of two million people, he would have to appoint 262,000 new leaders. 262,000 new leaders. Check my math, okay? Fact check that thing. But that's not a random draft. Okay, so take a, take a look at the list of qualifications. Verse 21. Able men, meaning they are capable of responsibility, and they have the potential for greater things. Those who fear God, those who want to honor Him, those who desire to follow Him, those who fear the Lord at the beginning of wisdom, that's Proverbs 9, 10. Men of truth, that's what it says. Trustworthy, that mean, that's what it means. Honest, reliable, they have integrity, and they hate covetousness. In other words, they are actively pushing away the wrong desires about stuff and possessions, right? That's, that's who they are. And so in the slide, in some of our references, in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, those are the qualifications for leaders, at least how God measures leadership. So if you're trying to be a leader or you're trying to choose leaders, that's where you go, okay? So I love it that when you compare verse 21 here in this text and with the 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, and Titus 1 text, there's this hidden overlap. And the hidden overlap is this, that they honor God, that those that you choose should honor God, and they should be above reproach. That they should aim to honor God, and they should be above reproach. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it to be selective for those leaders. I love that the Bible repeatedly shows how God holds spiritual leadership in high regard. And it's because he himself is a leader, right? God is Lord. He is king. He himself leads by example. He himself governs the universe. He is a good father. He corrects. He guides. He nurtures. He's not afraid to confront. He's a good shepherd leading his sheep. He is the commander of the heaven's armies. He is a righteous judge. And I love how the advice of Jethro helps us to see what God values in leaders, but in turn, it also shows us more about who God is. I love that. Okay. So you got all the three. Number four, we're on number four now. Counsel received. Counsel received. 
Verse 24, so Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and he did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went his way to his own land. I think Jethro is so cool. Right? He, he comes, he stops by, he gives some wisdom, he drops the mic. I don't know if he had a mic, but I'm sure he didn't. But he drops the mic and then he leaves. So I want you to think about this, right? Jethro breaks what we would consider as good advice etiquette. He breaks what we consider as good advice etiquette. He gives unsolicited, unsolicited advice. That's a no-no right, to us, right? That's a no-no to us. Unsolicited advice? I didn't ask for that. Yeah, but, but, Mo, but Jethro did it anyway. So I'm wondering how many of us would secretly be offended with Jethro? How many of us under our breath would secretly say, man, I never asked him for that. Why'd he, why'd he offer that? He just got here. He doesn't know how this stuff runs. How, why would he tell me stuff that? Did God ask him to lead his people? Did God show all the miracles through him? Did God appear in a burning bush to him? I, I don't think so, right? There could be some resentment brewing in there for Moses, potentially, if I was, that was me, it could have been. But remember this, we deny ourselves, we deny ourselves much wisdom because of our pride. We deny ourselves much wisdom because of our pride. But Moses, he listens. In fact, he listens exactly. So I want you to think about this. In Exodus 18, Moses' great battle was not the lack of water or lack of food or drama or even the external enemies. His great battle was is his own willingness to be corrected and to listen to advice. That's his great battle. Our slide, Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. If you zoom out and you see this from a big picture, God knew that this was the best time for this. There was no major conflict, no major battle, no major drama, no great need God's timing is superb. He knew exactly when to do these things. But it's more than that. If you believe that God is in control, then he caused this moment to be as it is. He shielded them at that moment from the drama, from a great need, from his enemies, so that it would be an opportunity for growth for Moses and for Israel. I want you to remember this. It's either fighting season or it's resting season, but it is always growing season. Let me say that again. It's either fighting season or resting season, but it is always growing season. And as we, as we close, uh, at first glance, it looks like it's a little bit anticlimactic, right, for a finale, right? Where's the thunderstorms and where is the miracles and the supernatural victories? Where is that? That's what you would expect in a finale. But God is showing Moses and he's showing Israel and then also us that he is present in both the miraculous and in the routine, that he can speak through unbelievable supernatural events, but also through an old, experienced father-in-law. 
And God desires that we would be heavenly minded and earthly useful. What an amazing God, right? That is, that is, the, that is the center point of what we're looking for. Let, let's do some takeaways and then let's, let's end and, and close this out. Number one, number one, aim to have a contagious worship. Aim to have contagious worship. Work to ensure that you are an encouragement and an example to others. And I don't, I don't mean to be people pleasers. I mean First Peter 2.12 in your study guides. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our lives must be neon signs that point to Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And understanding that we are sinners saved by grace, that reality must spill out into worship, and it must spill out to the lives of others. We have to be contagious. Number two, pray to be teachable. Pray to be teachable. Pray to have a soft heart. Pray for humility. Pray for, for a heart or to be like Moses. Even though God had some amazing things working through him, he was still willing to be corrected, and he was still willing to listen to advice. First Peter 5.5, 5, not in your notes, not in the slide. First Peter 5.5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Remember, not every rebuke is meant to harm. Most is meant to help. And third and finally, entrust to others what you can. Entrust to others what you can because the opposite is true. Don't hoard what you should be sharing. That's true for faith. That's true for truth. That's true for opportunity, for honor, for the positions in life. Share those things and see what God will do in you and through you when you have your hands wide open. Let's pray. Dear God, we're just so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you are our God. We're grateful that you are constantly teaching us. We're, we're grateful that your word washes over us. We pray that we would receive it well. We pray, Father, that we would have hearts like Moses. We pray that we would find you in the miraculous and in the routine. That we would hear your voice in the supernatural, but also among others as we live lives together, as we don't do it alone, as all of our uh, vulnerabilities ultimately display your wonderful good works. And even in our failures and even in our depravity, even in our sin, you come racing in as our salvation and to be the rescuer for all things. Bless our day. Bless our, uh, our word that we have heard. Bless your truth in Jesus' name. Amen.